0: A quick disclaimer before we get started. This episode probably above others that I've cut this past year during COVID times where there's a lot of excitement both in my home studio and you know what's going on in the background in my neighborhood. There's a fair amount of background noise in this episode and I did my best to clean it up to keep it from distracting from the conversation but I want to thank Stephen and Julia again for dealing with the excitement and helping me make the best of what is just the way things are right now. Thanks and enjoy the episode. There's great news. No Such Thing podcast is available on just about every major podcasting platform where you can download podcasts. The only way for you as a listener to be involved in How easily others find the show and can get excited about our conversations is to like, rate, and review. That is your input to the algorithm to let folks know that you care about the content and you want to support it. Also, I hope you'll head over to facebook.com slash no such thing podcast like that page to follow for early releases of new episodes, as well as additional content from guests, events and other things from partners and friends. And one of my favorite sticky posts, the listener survey to help us learn more about you and give me some input about what you hope to hear on future episodes. You're the best. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. We no longer live in a world where AI is something we can speculate about in a futuristic way. We're there. In the same way we think about the environment, a warming earth is not speculation about a dystopian future. We need to think about the impact and potential AI has on right now. How will its impact be carried by students today as tomorrow's leaders? There's a lot of pop culture, movies and TV, science fiction that puts AI and emerging tech in a negative light. Robots take over, grow minds of their own. Humans abuse the tech. We lead ourselves to a futuristic dystopia. This is all a fiction, of course, but I'm not the first to suggest that it's worth looking at the truth buried here. The thing about tech that scares people is how quickly it evolves. And sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that it's the lack of human involvement that makes tech scary. The truth is that really is a terrifying thought, but not nearly as scary as a reality where understanding and programming AI is the role and concern of a privileged few. Tech will continue to increase pace. But if there's one thing I hope you take from this conversation, It's that if we don't have the right humans with the right education at the table, whether in building the algorithms or shaping policy to guide what's just and equitable, leaving AI to the chosen few can indeed feed a dystopia in a way we didn't intend. We have the ability to create AI that reflects humanity and serves our needs. We can be the critical minds behind inclusive AI, and AI that's ethical, or we can let the few at the controls lead the rest of us. I believe education is at the heart of ethical AI. It infuses critical reflection and future leaders and lays a foundation for conversations like these to be continued well beyond our own future. I'm hoping this episode will help center our thoughts around the role of humans in AI. The Center for Responsible AI at NYU Tandon School of Engineering is playing a role in creating a future where, in their words, responsible AI is the only kind accepted by society. It's a place where work in responsible AI can coalesce in a fuller ecosystem of research, collaboration, innovation, and expansion. Again, their words, not mine. The center hosts a talent and education program that produces educational materials and workshops that we're going to talk a little bit about in this episode, but I hope you'll check out on their website in the show notes. It's centered on a curriculum of responsible machine learning and training computer and data scientists to be the critical thinkers that bring humanity into the tech. I can't wait for you to meet Steve and Julia.
1: Uh, hi, I'm Steve Kuyan, uh, and together with Julius Tyanovich, I co-founded and uh, direct the NYU Center for Responsible AI. I'm also the director of entrepreneurship at the NYU Tandon School of Engineering, and managing director of the NYU Tandon Future Labs, where we bring uh, various early-stage companies uh, from early stage uh, to sustainability and scalability.
2: Hi, I'm Julius Tyanovich. I'm an assistant professor of computer science and engineering at the Tandon School of Engineering and an assistant professor of data science at the Center for Data Science at New York University. I am the founding co-director of the Center for Responsible AI at NYU.
0: I want to talk to you about your work is um, you, too, are really integral to this center that started up at NYU through Tandon. And uh, it, it really is, I, th- I think, from what I the research that I've done, the, the joining of forces, because, uh, Stephen, you've been uh Really building, working at at building an ecosystem um, around New York through NYU for some time, and and through different initiatives. And Julia um, engaged in different work, and and yours feels like a coming together, a sort of confluence of efforts. And I wanted to have you talk about how you came together and where the idea for the center emerged.
1: From my perspective and sort of what led me to uh, perhaps serendipitously uh, joining forces with Julia, which ended up being perhaps, uh, as you mentioned, a really unique opportunity for us to build something uh, not just interesting together, but from different perspectives is, uh, you know, I spent the better part of the last decade uh, or more uh, trying to find ways to introduce new products into the market, help early stage companies Ensure that the, the the problems that they're trying to solve can have the highest likelihood of success and sort of becoming uh, early stage companies. And over the course of the years, have, you know, even though it's only been about a decade, we've seen various technology cycles and in the introduction of AI, um, and and through that, have built a really uh, I think uh, interesting lens into what it takes to. Uh, to go from ideation and inception to product and market to a sustainable and scalable venture-funded uh, or bootstrap startup, uh, and when I had the opportunity to, uh, to 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 work with Julia on on uh, hypothesizing how we could put together Center for Responsible AI, it sort of struck me as an ideal uh, opportunity to take the things that I've learned uh, and. Uh, kind of come to the realization that it is not mutually exclusive to introduce a product into the marketplace or introduce a really exciting startup into the marketplace and it not uh, abide by some level of, sort of responsible AI and and, and the like. Um, you know, especially over the last three years, uh, my focus has been uh, introducing uh as many AI companies into the marketplace as possible. You know, as we've seen, it's an incredible opportunity from a, from a venture perspective, uh, and from an efficiency perspective in terms of, uh, various commercial opportunities. And quite frankly, I was I was doing so blindly without understanding some of the implications that AI has uh, on society and the like. And Julia really opened my eyes to the research that she's been doing. And uh, I think together, we wanted to do more than just create a research center that uh, uh, posits around what are the potential opportunities, but really made lasting change on society uh, by taking what is the most exciting a- aspects of research, a lot of it uh, with Julia, and really, you know, finding a pathway to bring it to market through education and product and services uh, and the like.
0: Julia, okay. was, what, how, how, um, what's, what's your, your version of you guys coming together uh, the reason I ask is because it it feels like such an amazing partnership for the mission, the the orientation of the mission you all are after, and either it was like the happiest accident uh, ever that you two bump into each other. But Julie, if I'm if I'm if I put myself in your shoes, I'm you know, and doing the research that you had been doing and working as a professor in computer science and engineering. Um, I see Steven and I'm thinking, like, if I could get my hooks into this dude, um, I could affect, you know, the 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 ecosystem so deeply. Because if I can convince somebody who's doing so much fostering of new talent and business and new uh, new businesses as they go from this startup phase to um, to working, it feels like. That was such an amazing opportunity. Was it a happy accident, or was it by design? Did you see Stephen and think, I need to have somebody like this in my corner?
2: So it, it was indeed an accident. And when you first asked that question and Steve started to respond and he said that this was a serendipitous uh, you know meeting and and collaboration, I also wanted to use that word. So this means that we we think alike, Steve.. Uh, so, absolutely, it was a very happy accident. Uh, but I also don't really believe in accidents and in luck. I think that we both were open to seeing in each other and in the directions of the work that we each have been doing a very synergistic uh, opportunity, right, to make impact in uh, the AI ecosystem. And so my kind of little story here is that as an academic, uh, I'm not really expected to be doing the kind of work that the Center for Responsible AI is doing. Academics publish papers, we advise students, we teach. And in my field, uh, specifically in in computer science in data management, which is my home field, which is this really, really pragmatic uh, area of computer science, impact outside of academia is defined by... uh, productizing some of the ideas and usually this is when you know you create a startup or you help create a startup and then a large company like oracle acquires you and this is success right uh so these are you know business solutions and kind of you know the larger the company is that is adopting your technology the more successful you are in terms of impact but this is not where i think impact needs to happen or needs to continue to be happening today in the context of responsible AI.
1: Hmm.
2: Uh, I think what's lacking right now is the kind of input that academics from the technical disciplines can bring to the policy conversation, oh, to the public education conversation. But very importantly, and this is the connection with Steve, to truly helping democratize responsible AI. It's much more difficult, it's much more expensive, it requires a lot more expertise to do AI work responsibly than to just do it somehow. And in particular, the medium size and the smaller companies, the startups that Steve uh, and the Future Labs are helping accelerate, are the ones that are in need of, uh, of this type of insight. And unless we are able to make it so that uh, this knowledge and the practice of thinking about the social implications of AI is standard part of the design of these products, of the evaluation of these products and of their adoption, we are going to uh, further exacerbate the divide between the large companies that can afford to be ethical if they so choose, right? I mean, we're seeing large companies fail at this, obviously, and the smaller companies that simply cannot afford to uh, build technology in this way. And uh, what Steve and I both believe is that Responsible AI is the only sustainable AI that we can build, Mm. right? Because ultimately, when you develop and bring to market a product that breaks society even worse than it's broken today, you're going to go out of business. There is going to be opposition to the way that you do business from the public, from your customers. You will be sued uh, in court, right? So there's also a tremendous economic impact uh, that developing responsible AI brings and we do want to make sure that startups have access to that economic opportunity
0: what what's so um this topic is really important to me personally um not because i have a startup not because uh i'm an academic in computer science but but um because i think increasingly it is important to people personally uh Through so many different doorways. Um, But if you are if you consider yourself a a citizen of the connected world, um, this topic is important to you. And what's what's heartening to me is to people can't see over podcast. um, you two must have talked about this in the same venue so many times but to to see steve um aggressively nodding to your <laughs> points is so heartening to me because it really feels like the union of of ways of thinking that are just um not in the same room enough and i wanted to ask you steve from from a um from the perspective, a sort of entrepreneurial perspective, right? It it there's this quote that I I yanked from uh, things you all have have said, and I think it's on the center's website that says making responsible AI synonymous with AI, which is very much related to what you just said, Julia. Um, it it suggests that there are two ways to look at AI, and I wonder, Steve, if you could just describe for us. Um typically what you see from entrepreneurs about the two these two, if there are two AIs, um what do they what do they usually um look like to the entrepreneur?
1: Certainly. And and I and I should note uh because I know Julia wants your credit for it, that that quote should be attributed to Julia for the history books. Uh I think it's <laughs> to, to be the first i have said it, but um uh it, I think, you know, Mark, the reality is most companies don't necessarily have enough access to education, which is, again, why uh, such a major focus of our efforts is education, don't have access to the education around what tools are available. Uh, So what you get in the industry is a bit of a bifurcation where there's a lack of knowledge. So. Startups will commercialize or, you know, bring to market whatever technology is available. So, you know, they'll take any one of these uh, uh, open source data sets, some of these open source tools and, you know, use whatever, you know, for example, using, you know, I know a lot of of, uh, companies that uh, do any sort of NLP work will take like the Enron data set. Uh, of their emails and you know like we all know that's a very biased email but it it, you know it's a means to an end so we need to develop this tool it's what's available so we'll use it Um, so i think there's a lack of knowledge on one end of the spectrum On the other end of the spectrum that julie alluded to is there are companies who are very conscious of this issue that are uh very aware that there is something that should be done and there's a lack of availability of tools expertise and the like to make it a reality, I mean, we've we've talked to companies in the process of the formation uh, of the center that have told us that they spend months. Uh trying to identify experts because they know that the tools that they are trying to release into the marketplace may negatively impact society if they aren't done so in a responsible way. Mm. So I really think that the gap that exists between the two things that you mentioned in the quote is really one of uh, lack of education and lack of access. And that's Mm. sort of the two things that we're trying to solve uh, really as quickly as possible, because in order for them to be synonymous, uh, we have to democratize access to the education around the topic. So everyone wants... Wants to learn about responsibility, and not just startups. Uh, but, you know, Julie alluded to this many, many times, the general public, uh, and really anyone. Because otherwise, how, how can we have uh, a conversation like we're having now if we're not all at least uh, knowledgeable enough to a certain point around the topic? Uh, and then access and availability of tools uh, so that if somebody wants to do something, if somebody has an intention to release something that abides by this notion of, you know, responsibility, I should be the only type of I, they can do so. And it shouldn't take months and hundreds of thousands of dollars to release a product that can do that.
0: So is it safe to say that the position for you both is um, that responsible AI does not need to, well, responsible AI is in a way the most direct path to long-term prosperity for a business that wants to use AI in what they're doing. Uh, it sounds, from what I I heard you say, um, that while industry may have for a long time felt like um, if they don't have what they need, you know, the toolkit they need to access the education, the experts to, to do this thing, it's going to cost too much time and money. Um, so let's do it the wrong way. But I think what I hear you saying is that um, eventually that business crumbles uh, under the weight of what they've what they've broken. Um, And that, in fact, this is a a piece of education that needs to be part of every boot camp, every CS curriculum nationally, you know, uh, globally, of course. Um, Am I am I on on the right track?
1: Yeah, certainly, I'll, I'll, I'll start, and I know Julia has a lot to say yeah. on this topic. Absolutely, without 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 a question, sort of uh, to to your last point, absolutely, uh, and to your earlier points. Look, the reality is, if we keep releasing technology that is unregulated, if we keep releasing technology that doesn't. Uh, you know, positively impact society where we're conscious of it. Then there's not going to be an economy to to take advantage of from a commercial perspective, right? Uh, uh, and quite frankly, this is the only way that I see and we see uh, us being able to continue to release uh, and make progress with AI, because otherwise, you know, there's there's far more negative sentiment about AI than there is positive sentiment. You know, if you look at movies and media, there's, you know, there's an outsized percentage of uh, movies that negatively showcase, you know, the dystopian future of AI, Mm. uh, which doesn't help with public sentiment uh, towards the technology. And then when you have further, you know, uh, very public um, negative uh, consequences, whether it might be, uh, you know, different Credit limits to uh, from credit cards from people you know from two individuals from the same household where the only difference is gender. Like these are not the kinds of things that uh, exude confidence in a technology. So the. This is not only important to, to society and from a commercial perspective, but it's one of national interest as well. We you know we're effectively in a global uh, race for for AI dominance, and unless the public accepts the technology, uh, there's going to be there's going to be a lot of difficulty in in releasing you know uh, continued commercial applications of AI across all the different areas where we need more efficiency. You know, healthcare being a prime example. Uh, so you know, the sooner that we adopt this. Uh, And, you know, sort of the sooner that we adopt this, the better off we'll be as a society in the short term and the more commercial opportunity it will be in the long term. But I think the the difficulty is uh, what we're trying to prevent here is uh, some of the potential negative uh, outcomes uh, that we can't foresee. Right. So we know that they, you know, we already know from the small sample size of some of these things that we've seen uh, that it could. It's already bad and could get worse, so it's a really difficult um, I think, situation in, that we're in. Where Julie and I are trying to lobby, and many, many others. You know, certainly, there's there's a whole global effort around very similar topics, uh, but we certainly believe that New York City and uh, New York New York is is a prime region for this. But you know, it's it's very difficult to foresee what are the potential negative circumstances if we don't do anything. Uh, but I think that's enough of an incentive for us to do as much as we can now.
0: Julia, you one of the. Um, let me say first that there is a six-hour-long version of this conversation where I'd I'd like to dig into three or four things that you just said um, that we're not going to have today, but I I hope we can have at at some point, um, and and uh, including the I, I'm really. Interested in what you described as the sort of race for dominance in AI, which um, is a whole rabbit hole that I'd love to go down in some at some point because I don't think a lot of people, myself included, completely realize what's at stake in in a race for dominance um, around AI. Um, I do want to shift, but but maybe that's a, a teaser for an, another conversation, uh, Julia. The homework that I got to do for this episode, put me on to some of your writing and past interviews and, and things. And, um, I'm sure you'll correct me. I'm just a, a a layperson, but I feel like I've I've read the work of a fair number of engineers and computer science professors, and you write really eloquently for an engineer, computer science professor. There are all these beautiful uh, pull, you know, pulled quotes that I had in my notes. One of them is is um, this: you say. Uh, we technologists no longer have the luxury of hiding behind the unattainable goals of objectivity and correctness. The burden is on us to think carefully about our place in the world and to educate ourselves on the social and political processes we are impacting. Society cannot afford us moving fast and breaking things. We must slow down and reflect, which gives me – I just got goosebumps just like getting getting to the end. It, I know it, it sounds like old uh, – It's like old hat to you, but uh, it it feels so good to read. And there are a lot of folks who listen to this show who uh, are computer science educators, uh, folks who work in STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, math. As you know, uh, I'm explaining for other folks who don't work in that space. Um, And the question I really wanted to ask you after reading that quote is... um, do you, is one of these a better characterization? Um, one, that ethics is missing from the computer science curriculum or that computer science is missing from the ethics curriculum? Does one strike you as more right than the other?
2: Uh, thank you for for the question. And of course, thank you very much for the compliment. I very much enjoy writing and I'm glad that it's uh, it's understandable and that you, you can relate to the sentiment that Most I'm definitely. conveying. Uh, so, in terms of the question itself, I really think that we need to boil the ocean here, in terms of building bridges uh, in understanding, in creating a nuanced understanding of where technology fits and sits in society, so that there isn't the next AI winter, where once again we overpromise and underdeliver, mm-hmm. right? But in a very different way this time. Um, so maybe we'll, we'll go back to that in just a moment. But uh, I don't know whether it is uh, more urgent for us to educate computer scientists on the ethics and on the social implications of the technology they're building. Or if we should rush to educate non-technical people about technology. I do feel that we need to do both of these things simultaneously because we need to come to a place of a dialogue. We do really need to be able to not only bring everybody to the party, but also allow people to dance with each other. Um, And in some sense, I think that it's easier to educate members of the public about technology or non-technical folks about technology than it is to educate technologists about ethics. Technology, uh, computer science in particular, uh, is very easy to put inside the box We can very nicely define the models, we can very nicely explain to ourselves how the world somehow is projected into these models, we can reason about the properties of our technical systems, and ultimately, very often, there is such a thing as a ground truth. Your system either works or it doesn't work, Mm. and you can use the scientific method to test whether, in fact, it works. So, like, you build a chair... Is it a good chair? Well, are you able to sit in it? Is it comfortable? Does it break when you sit down? If not, a good chair, Hmm. right? But with ethics, it's so much harder exactly because there isn't really a ground truth. A lot of this is about human judgment. It's about uh, distilling and operationalizing. I hate that word, but that's actually what it is, right? Actually putting into concrete technical steps ideas that defy a definition. Hmm. Um, so we, we need to do both. And uh, both of these things have, have to happen yesterday. Uh, <laughs> both are hard. <laughs> but we really just cannot step away from this challenge. Um, and I also think that we technologists have a tremendous responsibility to be explaining what we know uh, to the people around us who are non-technical. There is always this uh, attraction kind of in showing to others that you know something that is so tough and so exclusive and that gives you this power to really be the centerpiece of of, of society of the conversation right but mm. we really need to look inward and 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 work on uh, on breaking these barriers
0: yeah, uh, yeah. a uh, a developer friend uh and co-worker of mine recently uh, made me scribble down and and put a sticky on my monitor here that says um that says merge conflict which um as you guys Uh probably know is a pretty typical it's a phrase in computer science that you know relates to a, a bug when two things are sort of um contrasting in a way that causes things to break am i is that an okay uh
2: like yeah, 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 yeah. That, that, that's a, that's a slightly meta kind of characterization, but this is when two people are working simultaneously on something, and both of them think that their version of that something, the next version, is the one that should be used going forward. Right. Usually, we use version control systems, yeah. and when two people try to commit to that version control system simultaneously, you will get that conflict.
0: Yeah. So so you see where I'm going with this it it the reason it it makes me think of this phrase and it and this thing has been sticky for me literally a sticky on my monitor but also <laughs> sticky for me is is I think as, especially in this world um I feel like there there is this merge conflict that that comes back around every time we we take a stab at it between technologists and I guess I guess the other The paired partner in this case is, um, is society and and the values of the culture where we try to bring these products because it feels like those are the two things that eventually end up clashing. And I think what I'm so excited about your partnership um, is because it it feels like we're trying to address that conflict very specifically through the center and figure out how to get people the education they need to have that uh, to create some version control around those two things. How do we establish a set of values around AI that help us see it as uh, a, a friend and a support to what it is we're trying to do uh, culturally and on the technical side, how to do that in a way that meets people's expectations. I, I hope that's not too far a, uh, a, a, uh, uh, a bastardization of the the term in in a technical sense but um i do one of the things that i wanted this episode to do is to bring to light an example of where these two things come together and i think 1894 is a really good place to do it so um 1894 is for you know most folks who who maybe aren't following this uh, is a proposed law in in New York State and where I wanted to start was actually having and you guys can correct me or present a different way to do this if you think there's a better way but um, what I wanted to do is Steve I was hoping that from a product perspective you could describe the life cycle of a job or housing ad that suffers from inappropriately being sort of machined through popular platforms um, so that people can understand what doesn't work here.
1: Sure. And, and perhaps I'll even, if you'll allow me, to tie in why the whole notion of AI and hiring is so exciting, not just for companies in general, but especially for early stage companies uh, or anyone, you know, um, uh, or any or any company for that matter who may be uh, resource constrained. yeah, please. Uh, so, uh, there there have been tr- a tremendous number of uh, companies uh, that have gone on to solve, you know, as we sort of apply AI to various efficiency problems, the whole notion of AI and hiring. Uh, the reason this is exciting from a commercial perspective is, as we know, there are, typically dozens, if not hundreds, uh, if not thousands of applicants for certain jobs. It is uh, impossible for any human being to review all those uh, applications. Uh, and it, it is certainly, you know, in the hope of, of some, perhaps some, um, uh, some you know, the hope of, of, of some notion of, of, of building uh, efficiency Without compromising ethics, there's some potential uh, opportunity that exists to apply AI to this solution that would make it easier for a company to better sort between all the potential applicants to determine who might be uh, the most uh, fitting individual group of individuals to potentially interview. Now, there's a lot of, and Julia can certainly speak to a lot of the the issues from a technical perspective, why this was not just difficult um, to do, but uh, uh, also very complex and complicated, uh, given that you have to use historical data to build these models. Uh, But it is something that uh, I think has uh, grown to include a lot of commercial interest, uh, because it's a very large market opportunity, again, from a venture and commercial perspective, there is a lot of money that's spent on hiring. Uh, so there are a lot of tools available uh, in order to solve these problems. The issue, of course, arises is, you know, how do you benchmark these tools, which tools work, which tools don't, uh, and so on and so forth. So 1894, uh, and I think I'll allow Julia to talk about it a little bit more, uh, because she's, she looks at it from so many different angles. But tries to solve a lot of the uh, the regulation that's lacked when you do something so complex yet so sensitive as determining who does and does not get a job uh, based on you
2: know
1: you know you sort of you can call it science a lot of companies call it science a lot of companies call it intelligence but it really is very far from that uh, it's just a sort of data approach to determining we might be a good fit for a role. But let me perhaps pass it to Julia just to share a bit more about um, uh, the bill itself and, and, and our efforts and why it's so important to solve it.
2: Great. Right, so uh, this is actually, this discussion is one of the examples where Steve and I respectfully disagree perhaps, right, and yet we're, we're able to have very, you know, nuanced and then so civil conversations, and that is I remain to be convinced uh, that AI is useful uh, in predicting social outcomes, which is what these algorithmic hiring tools prepared to do. Um, And even if we were able to use AI, if we were able to use essentially, you know, pattern recognition of some sort to predict who would do well on a job and who would not, because people similar to them did or did not do well on the job in the past. Mm. A big question for me is whether we should be asking machines to be making such predictions because they are, uh, in, in doing so, we are denying people agency. We are denying them an ability to live their lives how they want to live them and to prove us wrong, to fail at something that they look like they would succeed at and to excel at something where they don't really look good on paper for that particular task or goal, right? So um, I do see value in using technical tools to assist in this work, to sift through the avalanche of, say, resumes or, or expressions of interest of other kind by potential employees. Uh, but I don't think we need uh, a fancy artificial intelligence system here. I remain to be convinced that something better or more sophisticated than essentially a random coin flip Mm. is necessary. And the random coin flip has multiple advantages. So randomly selecting candidates given that they have the necessary and clearly stated skills for the job, right? So if a particular degree or certification is required for you to do a particular job, you would filter for that. You don't need an AI for that. That's a very simple filter, right? And then on top of that, you have some requirements, for example, in terms of the demographic composition of the people that you select, or simply there's a certain number of positions to fill. And to choose these people, you can do so randomly from among the qualified people. And if you truly are doing this randomly, then you will not be introducing bias, right? So this is a very significant advantage, A. And B, it's very cheap to flip a coin. (laughs) <laughs> you you don't need to spend a lot of energy, a lot of programming, uh, to to develop these methods. So again, you know, as you know, a reasonable person, I'm not going to say that this will remain my point of view forever. Mm-hmm. I would would love to uh, to see uh, a convincing argument to the contrary, but the burden is on the producers of the software and on the employers using these software to demonstrate to us that in fact these machines work using the scientific method why reinvent the wheel uh, sorry this is a kind of a um, tangent nice. from from what you asked but yeah.
0: not at all steve i'm gonna i'm gonna give you a, a chance to to respond you said um julia in uh something i i read of yours bias in ai is much broader than just bias in the data it arises when we attempt to use technology where a technical solution is simply inappropriate. So I think a, a great sort of encapsulation of, of what you just said. So, Steve, take us. Um, I'm I'm just so curious to I, I hate to even interrupt because I'd much rather you guys just have a conversation about this. Um, I feel like everybody would get, would get more out of it. But Steve, how would how, what's your next thought hearing what Julie just said?
1: I think I think it's it's, it's, it's we certainly had this conversation at, uh, at length before, and uh, I, I I do believe that you know it doesn't necessarily have to be AI. So I don't disagree there at all. I think some technical solution to the problem of giving, uh, especially early stage companies. Uh, the ability to determine who might be a good fit, whether, you know, through some sort of um, sorting algorithm that determines uh, whether or not somebody has the specific certification uh, is, is an incredible starting point. But perhaps if you, if you allow me, Mark, I'd love to ask Julia a question, which is, do you think an AI solution does exist or is it, Let me, let me rephrase that, is it technically possible? given what insight we have in the solution that uh, something can exist in the near term or is it just not possible at all from a technical perspective?
2: I think it depends very much on what you consider success, right? So artificial intelligence tools are engineering artifacts and they work to specification. So in particular here you need to define in a way that the machine understands that you can encode, right? what it means that somebody does better on the job than somebody else right and 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 then you can test your machines and in fact check whether that that criteria that goal is attained so a very simple example uh a retailer like walmart when they're hiring people to uh you know work at the at the registers at the cash registers what is the objective that they are uh that they have they want to make sure that people stick around longer. They don't want a lot of turnaround in, you know, the employees being hired and leaving. And uh, so this is something that we can very easily measure, right? I mean, you can actually go uh, hire a bunch of people, those that the machine recommends, and also a random sample of people who are comparable in some way, right? Maybe from the same population. And then you can check whether the machine recommended to you, people who in fact... Uh, stuck around longer at the company than the people that you selected with with your random process. So this this is one example, very simple example of where you postulate a hypothesis. Your hypothesis is, uh, I mean, you can kind of phrase it positively or negatively, but essentially what you're trying to capture is this algorithm, this AI, is going to be a better predictor, better than a random guess. Let's say, right? of uh, a particular aspect of an employee's performance. And, and I'm stating it here clearly. It's whether they stay with Walmart or a similar retailer longer than somebody who was just selected randomly, right? And so um, unless we define things in this precise manner, I don't think we can convince ourselves that the tools, in fact, are working. And then there are some of these properties that these machines are, again, purporting to predict that there's disagreement about whether these are even valid constructs. Mm -hmm. I mean, is it the case that personality is a valid construct to the extent to which it's relevant for for performance uh, in a particular position? What does it mean that somebody is dependable? Is it actually a property of an individual or is it a function of how that individual fits into the work environment and all of the other external factors, right? So, so these are fairly complicated things that we are asking machines to essentially adjudicate on our behalf. Right? It's a shortcut that we take.
0: That's so interesting. I never, I never, uh, that I can remember, really thought about the issue of the flexibility of language in in the context of what works and doesn't work in the AI around hiring. Right. So dependability was your example. Um, maybe not depend. Well, dependability is a good example. I mean, dependability to, um, you know, if you're applying to be a UPS driver is something entirely different from dependability. If you want to be a, um, graphic designer at an ad agency, I don't know, but you know, whatever, whatever it is. Um, so how how we also um how we balance um or or um you know mitigate the the um, the risks around the flexibility of language is also really curious to me I don't know that there's a uh Uh, uh, you know, uh, that's a a rabbit hole we want to get into in this conversation. But um, it makes me think, uh, man, what you just said makes me think a lot.
2: Maybe just to follow up on that a little bit. I mean, essentially, just as soon as you start digging, everything here is a rabbit hole. Yeah. Right. And then what we are doing by saying, no, technology is going to solve this for us is we're blinding ourselves to the just intangibility really of asking these questions. Uh, and and we also are legitimizing the kinds of choices that we make with the help of these machines. Yeah. We're saying this is now objectively correct, right? And then that's, that's an
0: issue. Yeah, so um, to come back to 1894, right. uh, this would regulate the use of ads in hiring through a combination of auditing and public disclosure. Let uh,
2: let me correct you. I'm sorry, Mark. It's right. not ads. It's ads. Automated decision systems. Uh, automated decision systems. Right. So so that's that's a very broad term. In-
0: very very different than the way that I was uh, I yeah. was understanding it. Um. So automated decision systems. Right. Just another another way from its policy speak for AI.
2: It's, it's a bit more I'd say than AI so this is yet another rabbit hole that we might we might go yeah
0: so t- so how would you define ads
2: right so uh ads automated decision systems uh are difficult to define and part of the reason that they are difficult to define is because different people different stakeholders uh have different incentives in terms of regulating them or not regulating them and then how you define it is going to then scope the regulation give the scope to to regulation right so i have a definition of ads uh that 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 i think captures the concept pretty well in its complexity and that is it's uh data-driven algorithm-assisted systems that are used to either make decisions on their own autonomously or that advise people, decision makers, on how they would make these decisions. And importantly, an ADS is more than an algorithm. It's a data set together with an algorithm and together with the context of use. And uh, what's important is that the context of use has to be somehow impactful. So when we talk about automated decision systems and they need to regulate them, it has to be something like, Uh, A system that is used to give access to economic opportunity or uh, to, you know, uh, restrict uh, access to services, let's say, or grant access to services. So it's something impactful. It's not, you know, a system that decides what color shoes to show me when I browse the web today. And being a sure aficionado, of course, I appreciate the, the gravity of seeing, you know, an ad that I don't like. But I mean, we, you know, jokes aside, ADS are used in, in impactful domains. They may or may not contain uh, an advanced AI algorithm. They may or may not operate with a full degree of autonomy. But they always use data. They rely on data. And they always make decisions that are impactful, that impact people's lives and livelihoods, and for that reason, they should be subject to oversight, which includes public disclosure. Hmm. So that's that, that's my opinion. And the goal uh, in us designing and deploying these systems, these ads, uh, is to uh, improve uh, equ- equitability in access to opportunity, or at least not make things worse mm-hmm. in terms of equitable access.
0: Right.
1: And I think it's, it's, it shouldn't be understated just how many of our current systems uh, have uh, influence from ADS. I think uh, it, it, Julia mentioned a couple of examples, uh, and I think most of your listeners, uh, just like I uh, felt when Julia and I first had the discussion uh, will grossly underestimate how many things in our daily lives have some influence over ADS without knowing. And, and to the, some of the Julia's points, the 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 and uh, uh, some of them, the delta between what uses, you know, perhaps advanced AI and what could be a very old system that is quite antiquated, but it's still very much in place and it's still very much feeding potential decisions to individuals uh, with known records of the systems not working. Can- uh, I know. I know you sort of had, had the question about 18 1894. So, so so maybe we can go back there. Yeah,
2: sorry, we, we keep leaving that. Yes,
1: yeah. <laughs> coming, coming up on time. But we, but I, I do want, if you allow me, Mark, to as Julia to talk about why public dis- disclosure in ADS systems is, is so important, and, and what it means uh, to audit some of these ADS systems. Because uh, uh, Julia has uh, as 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 you mentioned earlier, has a very eloquent way of under sort of describing why public disclosure is so important. When it comes to these ads systems, yeah. Sorry for taking your job, by the way. No. <laughs> no
2: right. So, so be, before I dive into that, uh, I don't know whether we will have time to talk about uh, the comic books, but we just released.
0: I do. I, I do want to okay, land. So we'll, and, we'll and talk, talk about, about the, it then later and talk yeah. about uh, Mirror Mirror. Uh,
2: because we have another one at now that's called Fairness and Friends, and in it there is a whole pictorial definition of ads, automated decision systems. Awesome.
0: This is what I was I was missing when I was when I was reading about 1894. Yeah. Um, you can imagine. Right. So,
2: oh,
0: I'm sorry, Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So
2: 1894, right? This uh, is a very very promising bill uh, that New York City is considering to regulate to oversee the use of algorithmic tools in hiring. And no matter what your definition of ads, an algorithmic hiring tool fits that definition. It it uses data, it processes it, it uses some technical means, AI or not, to actually decide which candidates move uh, through the pipeline and which which don't. And the decisions that are being made with the help of these systems are extremely impactful, right? And so uh, this bill says that every uh, algorithmic hiring tool that happens at any stage in the hiring process and actually it may be the case that the, the bill will cover also stages of employments that are past hiring, for example, uh, evaluation for promotion, right. Or, you know, whom to fire from whom to let go from a company. Yeah. Um, right. So, so this bill says whatever tool is used in hiring and employment in New York city needs to be subject to an audit for bias And it also, uh, when it's used, uh, a job seeker needs to be notified that a tool was used to screen them Mm. within 30 days of them being screened. And also they should be told what characteristics of their profile, of their application, of their resume, for example, the tool was used for, was using for the screening. Mm. And so this is a very strong public disclosure requirement. It could be stronger. because job applicants are notified after the fact. And so what we actually think is required is uh, to notify them beforehand so that they can, for example, request accommodation if they know that there is a disability that they uh, experience and that would prevent them from from doing well on a test. But maybe that's a tangent as well that we, we might come back to. But this requirement to actually explain to a job seeker how the tool made its decisions based on what did it decide which words in your resume stand out uh, and make it so that I do invite you for a job interview or that I don't invite you, right? So if this law were passed and if if this phrasing was, was kept or hopefully made even stronger about disclosure to job seekers, then uh, an explanation like, oh, too many people applied and therefore we couldn't hire you just wouldn't do, right? It would have to be much more substantial than that.
0: Yeah, this is – so where I was going earlier with the life cycle um, before 1894 and the life cycle after 1894, before I submit my resume, um, I am, uh, you know, based on race, um, ability, uh, gender – any of those things could be an aspect of the screening. I don't need to be. Um, it could be could be part of the automated system that's that's filtering me. Um, okay. I just had so much noise turn on in the background. Can you guys hear it? Yeah. Yeah. A little. Um, could be a part of the system that's filtering me in a future life cycle for a a job applicant. Um, they submit a resume, maybe it's maybe it's through a, a public um, domain of some kind, a public venue, um, where everybody has a, a dashboard that can see how many times this thing um, was filtered in an automated way, they're let know, um, it was based on, you know, there were three flags based on your resume, based on the following, and they would actually have dialogue there's a there's a dialogue to be had then with um the hiring organization with the folks who are building engineering that product um so so in essence it's sort of um i don't want to say i'm resisting the temptation to say forcing us into this space where we need to have this Indeed. conversation but it Indeed. but it is uh forcing us into right. that space um and and it, it's exciting, Steve. Do um, I would imagine the folks who are working with you in uh, in in the early stages of startup know what they're getting into in terms of your feelings about about these things, uh, right? But I would imagine that many are looking at things like eighteen ninety four as a real barrier to business. Um, do you hear that, or am I out of touch with where young entrepreneurs' heads are?
1: Yes and no. Um, I think for most early stage companies, uh, they uh, they see a potential solution, and 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 I think because of a lack of, again, back back to there being a lack of education. You know, I know we didn't we didn't have a chance to talk about all of our focus on public education and and why it's so important. But I think because of a lack of education, they uh, are unaware that this is a potential problem. Hmm. You know, unfortunately, if 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 someone uh, is selling a potential solution, and you know I think a lot of the solutions that we see out in the market uh, misconstrue some of the the validation and the technology uh, that they receive. Uh, I tend to you know have a bit of confirmation bias that if I see somebody selling me some sort of a solution and it says this has been proven in X setting, to be fair. I'm going to buy that, unfortunately, right? That's, that's the unfortunate circumstances of me being an early stage founder and being able to devote perhaps two minutes to determining which software solution I'm going to use to work, on, uh, to, sort of to work with to determine who I'm going to hire. So I really do think it's a lack of education. If I was aware of the potential biases that some of these softwares would have, I would certainly devote a lot more time to it. And I think a lot of our founders, and I think founders generally, uh, care about these problems. Um, they certainly want... Uh, The solutions that they're using to be reflective of the culture that they develop within their companies. But unfortunately, I just don't think that this is um, this is a part of our discourse enough. So it's it's not a topic that comes up uh, unless, you know, through some luck a founder understands that the technology isn't quite up to par which is you know i guess you can't you can and you can't blame the founder here because they're also commercializing ai so they know the limitations of the technology but again unfortunately we're, we're when you're a startup founder you're just so time constrained your only goal is you know Sort of understanding what are the mechanics of building your business, bringing your product to market that you devote so little time to all these other ancillary services. And again, this is why uh, our incubator even has to exist, because as a startup founder, you know, you're lucky if you uh, if you have time at the end of the day to sort of collect your thoughts after doing everything you're you're supposed to do. And even then, you know, uh, you're still working on a task list that's longer than there is hours in the day. Uh, but I think public education is is perhaps the most critical component here.
0: So that's actually a perfect place to land um, it, it, because it points us right to comics and mirror mirror and um, right there are, if if public education in fact is is a, a part of the charter of um, of the center then there are lots of learning design choices to be made including medium you know what how do we get this um, some of this learning out there? And one of the media you've chosen is comics. So tell me about mirror mirror and the new and the new um, volume and uh plug away because I want to I want to make sure that all links uh, links will be will go out with the show notes and everything else but but so that they hear it from <laughs> hear it here first uh, great
2: thank you mark yes. and uh, this of course is one of my favorite topics to talk about and again if people could could see me they could see me smile uh, when when you bring up the comic and uh, so so we have a comic book series uh, called the data responsibly comics and uh, so far, two volumes uh, of the comic book have have been produced by us. Uh, and the way that that I started participating in this and that we started producing comics is, again, uh, serendipity. Um, an absolutely brilliant uh, person, Fala Arif Khan, uh, contacted me. She applied to uh, go to grad school at NYU And she saw that I'm interested in responsible data science and that I teach a course on responsible data science. This is a technical course that we offer to graduate and now also undergraduate students at NYU who are in computer science or in data science. And so Fala uh, saw the course and she said, I'm a computer scientist by training. I'm also an artist. And here's a sample of a comic that that I've been drawing uh, to discuss AI to make it more publicly accessible. And we just hit it off because, you know, I don't produce art, but I love art. And uh, this was yet another opportunity for me to engage in in work that is both exciting intellectually, uh, that is a form of activism, but that is also really just where my mind and my heart meet. And this is also why I'm so excited about responsible data science and responsible AI is that I don't have to separate the academic me from the person me, mm-hmm. right? And I think that really this, this medium, art, and specifically uh, visual arts and, and the comic is absolutely something that we need in this area to make it so that technology and ethics, really scary topics, become accessible to people. And uh, I've been told that not all comics are humorous, but I think that humor is, is essential here, right? And this is what perhaps is one of the greatest differences between people and machines, is that we people, we have a sense of humor. Each one of us has values. Each one of us has beliefs. We are able to laugh at ourselves. And in doing so, we can make the world more accessible. And we can again help ourselves, empower ourselves to exercise agency over how the world is run, how we use technology here. So, uh, although again there was this was a happy coincidence that Fala contacted me. Like I said, I don't really believe in coincidences because then you follow through and you spend many months um, producing the, the these comics, and and it's just been an extremely rewarding. And just pleasant, pleasant experience. And I, I see a lot of follow-up on this. So the comics that we have at the moment, uh, I have to admit, are not uh, for the general public. They do require some understanding of data science. So they are for data science practitioners or students or enthusiasts. Right. But we, we also are building, uh, are developing, and should release in the next couple of months, uh, a series of shorter comic books that are really public facing. Great.
0: Well, um, maybe I can have uh, have you back on to talk about the. Uh the new public facing comics because i would i have lots of questions for your artist and uh just about the decisions made in designing um you know designing in that medium for uh the purpose of this kind of learning uh julia i really had so much fun in this conversation i can't thank you enough for spending time with me
2: thank you mark it was such a pleasure i hope we get to do this again
0: for more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. My thanks to No Such Thing production intern, the fabulous Margot Seaton. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, hailing from the Bronx, New York, and engineer of style and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser. A learner like you. And our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.